0: Everyone, Dave Broadbeck here. The lecture you're about to hear is for psychology, also biology, uh, 3506 neuropharmacology, and it's for the, uh, I guess, winter of 2018. Enjoy. Okay. that looks horrible. I'm sorry. I don't know why it looks blue. It's that thing's fault. Not well, my computer's fault. My computer looks great. Um, oh, that's awful. It's almost unreadable. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, okay, so what's a drug? Of course, it's about drugs, behavior, cognition, nervous system. We have to figure out what a drug is. Uh, some of these slides you guys in 2606 have seen before. Um, one of the things you'll often hear people say and Psych students are more used to this than biology students, probably. Is that oh, we all know what that means, right? So, psych students are used to hearing things like when someone says, What is intelligence? Yeah, someone says, Well, we all know what that is, and uh, the the common response one hopes of a psychology student is, That's not good enough, I need to be able to know whether it's like a measuring, and then like some sort of definition of it. So like we often use operational definitions, for example, of intelligence. We would say something like score on an IQ test. You can argue about that but that's all you want, but at least we now we, we agree on that's what I just said it is. It's not going to be good enough for us though, right? Like uh, a feeling. Though so we all have a pretty, imprie- What's the word I'm looking for. Not innate, no, it's not quite, but... Well, feeling about what a drug. So I can ask a very simple question here, and I'm not going to ask you what
1: you use.
0: Does anybody here not use any drugs? Yeah. You ever drink coffee? You drink coffee? I'm sorry, I can't see very well. I can't see if you're nodding or saying yes yeah. or no. Okay. So no, you use drugs. Because that's caffeine. Anybody else? Because sometimes it's like, I don't drink coffee, you drink chocolate,
1: caffeine,
0: psychoactive like drug. And of course, other drugs we would all use, right? Like you might take, yeah, I don't know, antibiotics if you've got an infection of some sort. So one of the first things is that a lot of times, and this isn't to make you feel marked out, because every, someone does this every year. I one time got someone to the point of, no, I don't use any drugs, and I said, OK, fine, you win taught this course like 11 times in one time, in two universities, in one time, someone got to the point where I said, "Okay, fine. You don't take any drugs, except for like antibiotics and all that. Most of us don't think of things like caffeine as being drugs, yet they're drugs, right? They are psychoactive drugs. They are delicious, delicious, mind-opening and awakening drugs. And there's not a man, woman, or child alive who does not enjoy a lovely beverage old baby letter reference that there's no way any of you were born he said that one of the ones you often hear it's pretty common actually is that it god that looks awful i'm just really sorry guys that. is that it alters physiology but it's not food oh, I think this is... oh yeah that just made it almost worse it, it's a little better god that's awful so it's not food but it alters physiology so what about vitamin c for example or any vitamin a lot of us take vitamin C for reasons that escape me. What vitamin supplements do, by the way, is they make your urine really full of vitamins. Um, most of us wouldn't classify that in our sort of internal idea of what a drug is. Most of us wouldn't classify taking the vitamin supplement as a drug. Right? Anybody else here take melatonin? to try to sleep at night. I do. Yeah, a lot of you, right? You think of that as a drug? I don't. I mean, I, I don't know why I don't, but I don't. I take other drugs, so, you know, I guess caffeine's right here. You'd be be aghast at my liquor bill every week. Um, But yeah, we don't classify those things. We don't tend to, in our sort of personal feelings, as to what a drug is, we don't tend to think of something like a supplement like, say, melatonin. Some things are also poisons. Now, in fact, almost everything at some level can be a poison, So gasoline is a nice example here, where gasoline as a product used to make engines go, and then it can be huffed as a drug, and then enough of it will kill you. Mugwort is a kind of root that if you take some of it, you get hallucinations. If you take enough of it, you die. It used to be a way in the long ago time that uh, people, women used to take this to have abortions. So they take the stuff enough to not kill them and kill the fetus. Because you know, that's uh, safe. So I wouldn't go what you call gasoline a drug. It can be used as wine, but you there. Contact cement. you not call that a drug. But it is. You ever been loopy from contact cement? I have. Putting down a floor with my father. Right? You sort of realize about it. 20 minutes in, you're both going, <laughs> that's not good. We stopped. Opened a window. We maybe we maybe have to say there's no definition, which just sucks. Um, it really bugs me as a scientist to say we have no definition. But we're going to have to stay there, I think. The other thing is there are things that we agree are drugs. We would all agree are drugs. Coke, What I mean, Coca-Cola, or a coffee, or a bottle of beer, right? Sometimes you have a Coke because you want a Coke. You go to McDonald's and you say, what would you like to drink? And you say, Coke. Are you saying Coke because you're like, because I really need to hit a caffeine? <coughs> Probably not. You're saying Coke because it, uh, Coke's good. McDonald's Coke is the best of the Cokes at the, at the fast food joints, if you've noticed that. I don't know why that is. Then there's these people. We have Pepsi. Is that okay? Ew! get over yourself. Really? I only drink Coke. And you're really, really special. Um, Or coffee. People go out for a coffee. Admittedly, I'm drinking that because I don't feel very great, and it's keeping me awake. But typically, after the one I have in the morning that gets rid of the withdrawal symptoms, I might have a coffee during the day. I usually drink maybe two cups of coffee a day the most. That's my third. I'm going to be dancing off the wall shortly. But oftentimes, times we go for coffee, yeah, sometimes you're like, we well, you should put on a pot of coffee because we're studying. And we're <coughs> caffeine. Even a beer, even after you mow the lawn and you're feeling really hot and sweaty, and you open up the fridge, and the first thing there is a frosty thing of beer. It doesn't even matter what flavor it is. The Brandon just go, oh, I'm having that. And you're not doing that because it's like, because I really need a buzz now. You're doing that because like I'm thirsty and it's cold. Okay? So sometimes you take drugs not even for their drug effects. So we're going to have to do with an intuitive definition, which is obviously the word I was looking for, um, but it sucks. It really bugs me. Question so far? So drugs have names. Um, Here's a chemical name. People here have taken organic chemistry in their lives. Okay, a couple of you. 7 chloro 2 dihydro 2 methyl 6 phenol 2 a blah 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 You know what that is? You could probably, when you were in organic chemistry, probably maybe kind of, sort of, kind of envision the molecule. Maybe don't know. helpful. Now there's a generic name for that thing, and it's diazepam. So that's diazepam. It's the same thing. Uh, is another name for a very common drug. So this drug here, 7-chloro-yada-yada-yada, is a common psychoactive drug. It's called diazepam. There's a different drug called fluoxetine. There it is, by the way. So those of you that were trying to imagine that molecule, scoring at home, that drug, in fact, is called Valium. Um, Fluoxetine, which is not that, is called Prozac. Okay, so these are drugs that are pretty common. We all heard of them in the literature. No one calls it by its chemical name. So when you're reading articles for your paper and stuff like that, people are going to tend to use the generic names, not the trade names. The trade names are actually like Kleenex or Vaseline. That's, what, that's where they have capital letters. It's also, by the way, why heroin has a capital letter, because it's a trade name for diacetyl morphine. Heroin was developed by the Bear Company, the same people that brought us aspirin. Okay. Notice the alias that they have capital letters. I don't know why that, that's a horrible bullet point thing. Right? So, you take drugs in dosages, of course, different amounts, and different amounts have different effects on different people, different animals, etc. This is especially true if they weigh different amounts. So, what we have to do is standardize this. And the way we typically standardize these things, and you'll see this in, again, if you're reading articles, is milligrams per kilogram. So, milligrams of drug per kilogram of Thing that's taking the drug or being given the drug. Most of the time, the rats that are taking them aren't taking them voluntarily, but sometimes they are. A friend of mine did her master's work on getting rats drunk, and the rats she taught the rats to drink. And they preferred it over water, which is pretty great. You also sometimes see um, millimoles per kilogram, it's easy conversion. So you might see that. Um, okay, so you got a dose of a drug. Some animal could be a human, but not have to be. And then you've got some response to that drug. Right? Oh, God, it's, it's, the temperature in here is random at right? best. If someone could build some kind of model that predicted the weather in this room, moment to moment, I think silver over at 538 can maybe do it. All right. So we're interested in the behavioral aspects, the cognitive aspects. We're also interested in the sort of neural aspect, in other words, the effects of the drug, yes? So we have to pick some variable for a response and plot that response as a function of the dose. Yes? sense. So let's just think of a simple example. And this probably would apply to everybody here who's ever drank alcohol. It should or something really weird about it. One drink and you're relaxed. We can sit here and argue about how relaxed one is easily. How are we going to measure that? Figure that in a second. Four drinks and I'm, let's say, tipsy. By eight, I'm relaxed again.
1: Hmm.
0: How could we measure relax and And nothing even invasive. Let's think of something psychological, really simple psychological things that we just observe. We could, we could maybe measure something by, with a device, but I'm not, I'm not talking good about something like blood pressure, even nothing like that. So you don't have to wear a blood pressure cuff or something. It's something simple we can use. Think about people when they drink. Go ahead. Self-report
1: measure.
0: You can use a self-report measure, but let's not do that. It's not a bad idea. You could certainly say, how relaxed are you? On a scale of 110. That's fine. It's not bad at all. But we probably need more than one question. So you need to develop a questionnaire. It seems like a lot of work. It smacks of effort. It's doable. It's totally doable. But it's a lot of work. Let's think of something that's less work. Let's be lazy. Yeah, yeah please. Reaction time? Reaction time would probably work. Um, how did you think that fix? I, I mean, in fact, I know this is an effect of reaction time alcohol Why you don't drive a drug. Well, that's why I don't don't drive drunk because it's illegal for me to drive because I can't see. Also, it's wrong. I don't know what your reason is. But, um, (coughs) kid, how would reaction time correlate with relaxing? It's not bad, by the way. I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not saying it's wrong. Do we think the lower your reaction time is, the more relaxed you are?
1: Hmm, not sure.
0: Not bad, though. Reaction time's a good one. Others. There's one that immediately comes to mind for me, but yeah, it. Got- what about
1: drowsiness?
0: How are we measuring drowsiness? Honestly, I would
1: just go with something more.
0: Yeah, again, so we have to probably use. Uh, we have to develop a questionnaire, okay. and if you want to go develop a questionnaire, you have fun with that, but it is probably know <laughs> It's a great deal of work. Okay. Right. Boys, the weather is weird. It's Like body language and postures. Okay. Okay. Good. That's not bad. How do we? What do you want to measure? Slumped over. So at the beginning, when I'm relaxed, I'm slumped over. When I'm tipsy, though, like, you know, you're kind of hammered, you're not like that anymore. Not bad. Not bad at all. Other thoughts? Some good ones here so far. I don't know how loud your voice is. Just get somebody to talk. All you have to do is get them to talk Say the same sentence. I don't know. Have them say. Uh, what's a good quote? Never have so few owed so much to so many. Have them quote Winston Churchill. But you know, have them memorize a little Churchill speech. People should do that anyway. Or they'll do some Shakespeare. Yeah. Whatever. Relax. You're going to be quieter. In the middle, you're going to be louder. Notice people get loud when they're drinking? Have you ever seen that? It's a thing. It's actually a, it's a noticeable thing. Your, the pitch of your voice actually gets high, too. We can actually measure voice pitch. But it's in fact the case that people get louder, and they, literally the tone in their voice goes up. And then later, when you've had so many drinks that you can't talk, <laughs> or you're like, uh, there's been, there were so many, and so much, i need a to you do it quietly. That would work, too. So there's a lot of ways we could do this, and we'd see this kind of nice effect like this. The thing about reaction time is we would see, in fact, this. Right? Because once you're kind of, when the bell rings, and you're supposed to move your hand from one thing to the other, it's like, what? Where? Anybody ever seen the TV show at WKRP in Cincinnati? Go find the clip of Dr. Johnny Fever taking the drug test, because he actually gets better for you. It's one of the classic things in the history of me. It's a great team, show. All right, so there's a lot of ways we can do this, but you see you get this nice kind of curve, this weird thing. Not too much, right amount, too much. When I say right amount, if you're trying to get drunk, you don't want to be hammered, falling down. You're on vomit, do you? Maybe some of you do, you have a problem. But mostly, when you go out for a few drinks, you're like, I want to feel f- have fun. I want to feel loose with my friends and just hanging out. And maybe I can be silly, and we can all be silly, and no one's the wiser, and no one gets hurt. right? And then there's always the one guy that gets too drunk, and he has to be evicted. It's always the same guy, too, isn't he? Right? Because you always hope when you go with that guy. Maybe this time, he'll only have like four. He's had four, four triples. And then he got, he's got his armor on both the you, and you're following along Queen Street, and he's like, I got to puke, but let's go to peanut pit first. You know, like that? You know like that, guy? So that shape in a dose response curve, is sort of, let's call it an inverted U, or just a U shape, is very common in dose response curves. In fact, here's a couple examples. So here we have activity level in, I believe these are rats. So we've got morphine, and then morphine and naloxone. I'll tell you about naloxone in a second. Morphine is, you know morphine is? It's an opiate, it's it rests, slows you down. Activity level on the left. You might say, how the hell are you measuring activity level in a rat on a big thing called an open field, which is actually a big piece of wood? What you used to do is just draw a grid on it, and you would pay some poor undergraduate to count how many times in a video the rat went across the line. What you do now is you set it up with um, photo beams and see how many times they, they just break the photo beam. Look what happens. Small amounts of morphine. Not much. whoa, look at all the running around. And then, sits in the corner strung out like he's on heroin. Because he's sitting on the corner strung out because he's basically heroin. The naloxone, by the way, is an opiate antagonist. It stops, it blocks opiate percentage. So in fact, that's why you see in those other ones, it basically has no effect whatsoever. On the right, it's nose poke. Nose poke is exactly what it sounds like. You put a hole in a, in a box, and you see how many times the rat puts its oh, it's, its nose in the, no, in the hole. It's just, it's searching the head. And they seem more active when they're taking morphine. What? I thought morphine would slow you down. And we've got an explanation of why they would be more active when they take morphine up until a point where they're strung out in the corner on heroin. Deal. Yeah. They don't feel physical strain as much as possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. What else? Go ahead.
1: Blocks inhibition.
0: Exactly, probably. is the best that you're, Which, which actually speaks exactly to Phil's point. Um, it's, it's a lack of inhibition. You're inhibiting inhibition. Okay? Rats don't like running around in big open spaces. You know why? Because hawks come down and eat them. It's a very good idea to cower in the corner like they do when they're not on heroin. Heroin and morphine are basically interchangeable. But if you inhibit that inhibition, it goes way up. This is why, again, alcohol is a depressant. It slows you down. Except people seem to jump around and dance a lot when they're drinking, don't they? And tell perfect strangers things they shouldn't tell them, right? And make bizarre decisions like, well, I'll cheat on my wife. She'll never know. By the way, that wasn't from personal experience, just letting you just put that out there. People make dumb decisions when they're drinking, right? Same reason. You would normally go, oh, no, I will not act on that impulse. That's stupid. In addition, Inhibition being taken away and then the little devil on your shoulders going, come on, go, go, go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes things just come to me and I laugh, and I know I can't say them out loud, so I don't. Um, okay, drugs, we have to describe how effective a drug is. We can talk about the ED50 and the LD50. The E D fifty is the effective dose for 50% of the population. This is obviously subjective, uh, unless it's some sort of medical thing where we can actually measure how many, you know, antibodies you created or something. But for a psychoactive drug, let's say cannabis, right, THC, What's the effect of those for 50% of the population. So you probably have to use a subjective measure if you've talked about it. So, you might have to ask people, are you high? And when they respond, I do not believe so, they're actually high. Risky Business, 1984. That's how old that reference is. Yes, pop culture references, as fresh as the day your parents were born. Um, it's pretty subjective. Even pain, we could use pain, right? Like, so, a lot of times um, when pain medication is being tested, You give people pain medication, and then you use a device that creates pain. Ew. It's not that bad. It's just a thing called a dolorimeter. And it's a pressure, looks like an air pump for a bicycle. And it pushes a little thing with a very small sort of pin-like. It's not like a pin. It's not going to puncture your skin, unless you're an idiot. But usually in your forearm, and you push down until someone goes, ouch. It a stop. And you can measure how many, uh, with what kind of pressure take. And then you give me analgesic, and they report pain or no pain. Right? That's still subjective. Still subjective. So generally, in the kind of drugs we're going to talk about here, these are subjective. Also, it's with clinical things, for example, we are giving people an antipsychotic drug. And they are having hallucinations. So the auditory hallucinations, they are hearing voices. They are hearing, you are Napoleon, uh, I was dynamite, bonaparte. What about boolean dynamite? What happened to bullion dynamite? What the hell? You must take over France and win a dance competition. That is a mashup. And then you keep asking them, are you hearing the voices? Are you hearing the voices? When they say no, we've now found the effective dose. And it's the effective dose for 50% of the population. Of course, we're going to measure that again in milligrams per kilogram. The LD50 is the lethal dose for 50% of the population. We don't tend to measure this in humans, what with the ethical guidelines. This tends to be translated from either case reports where people take too much of a drug and die, but typically from animal studies. Okay? You have to find an animal that has very similar physiological uh, system to humans, and you have to find that it metabolizes stuff the same as humans, and then So, that's the LD50 of the drug. Lethal dose for 50% of the population. So, now we can get something called the therapeutic index, right, which is the LD50 divided by the ED50, meaning that the higher the index, the safer the drug. So, the higher the index, therapeutic index, the safer the drug is. This is why I can make an argument Based on therapeutic index, that heroin is safer than alcohol. Therapeutic index for heroin: four and a half. For alcohol, it's three. So if it takes you, it, let's just do a little thought experiment. It takes you four shots, and you will feel drunk, like one after the other. Right in like five minutes, you go. <laughs> you take twelve; it could kill you. As I said, I drink. I like drinking. But you should know that it's an exceedingly dangerous drug. Now, it's also probably easier to take four times as much heroin as it is to take three times as much alcohol. I will grant you that. But if we're just measuring it based on therapeutic index, alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs known to humans that we ingest normally. Wow. Throughout the course, it's going to sound like I'm preaching against alcohol, and I'm so not. Last week, I didn't go to the liquor store. They actually sent out a search party for me. But... Where's Dave? There's still Pernod and gin in stock. What's happened? Oh, Broadback that didn't show up. Hmm. But if we're looking at similar drugs, doing similar things, those kind of comparisons are pretty useful. It's also a case right there where I can tell you that basically, based on therapeutic index, LSD is the safest drug you can take. I'm not suggesting you go take LSD. I'm also not suggesting you don't. I don't care what you do on your own time. Don't get behind the wheel of a car when you do it. Don't come to class tripping. I don't want to see that. but don't a new car, what else, I don't know. Operate heavy equipment, <laughs> you know, anything like that. Look, I take acid, donuts. nuts, don't care. As a rule, by the way, stimulant drugs are based on therapeutic index way safer than depressive drugs. As a rule, also not suggesting you all go start cocaine. Again, I don't care what you do in your own time. So if we're going to compare two drugs, we can look at the ED50 for both drugs. And the one with the lower ED50 is more potent. So if we're comparing two analgesics, uh, you know, ASA, aspirin, and, and morphine, Morphine has a lower ED 50 You need way less morphine to, to, to deal with pain than you need aspirin. Or we could use sucidumine, whatever, unproven. So, you know, efficacy is about the maximum amount something to treat. So again, morphine versus aspirin. Morphine is both, let's go back, sorry about that. Well, that should be a small n, that should be capital A, sorry about that. Uh, morphine is mo- both more potent and more effective than aspirin. It's a lower e 50 and it can kill more pain. When you go in after you've had surgery, they you don't know, say, well, here, we'll just give you a pile of aspirin. You give you morphine. Because no matter how, eventually at some point, it's like, well, that's not, that's, it can't kill this pain. Simulant thing. So, our nicotine is weird that the word of a stimulant. Um, but typically, is a classification of drug, THC is thought of as an own classification. Just like hallucinogenics are. So, just like LSD is not thought of as a. As a <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, LSD is not thought of as a uh, uh, depressant or a stimulant. It's a hallucinogenic. HD hallucin it's really all um, What are some others like that? And of course, there's like. Depressants, right? They, they do um, st- Stimulant versus depressant is a sort of useful rubric. Um, and we can think of stimulants like cocaine and amphetamine, methamphetamine. Those are pretty roundly considered what we call psychomotor stimulants. In fact, we'll talk about we that cyclotor stimulants. Whereas like depressants are weird in that Alcohol is depressant D. It's also weird in its own category. But so is or narcotic analgesics, things like codeine and morphine. But so are benzodiazepines and barbiturates, which are things like phenobarbital <coughs> and uh, diazepam. But they're different classes of drugs, but they both slow you down. It's a, it's a, it's a category, sorry, it's, it's more of a taxonomy than a useful category people will say that certain strains of, 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 of marijuana will be more calming and certain strains will be more you more excited but i think that's probably true because you know we have enough expertise nowadays at breeding plants that i'm sure you can probably do that yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, with nicotine i've heard that the profile changes on dosage that at first it's stimulant and then it dose that you have, it becomes a depressant.
0: I don't know that that's true. I do know that it has both qualities to it. Nicotine's weird in that nicotine is a stimulant in that in the peripheral nervous system, nicotine um, makes your heart beat faster, things like that, right away. You smoke, right? So you know this. I know. not so, Oh, you don't smoke. No. I thought I've seen you smoke. Um, but anybody who smokes knows this. It makes your heart beat faster, your pupils dilate, all that, uh, like caffeine does. On the other hand, it has... It's calming... Right? Anybody who smokes knows that a great way to calm down is have a cigarette. Excuse me? It's a stimulant. Because uh, it's not actually... There's also there's these weird properties where it um, enhances GABA, which is a uh, inhibitory neurotransmitter. So It's a very strange drug that way. Uh, at very large doses, nicotine will cause hallucinations. That's really big doses, though. That's uh, the kind of doses that uh, no one smokes, <laughs> but it can't happen. Um, caffeine's also weird. You know, what the ones that are the weirdest drugs are the ones that are legal. We know the least about are the ones that are legal. They're straight, They're hard to understand. Things like that. <clears throat> Marijuana is also weird because there are THC receptors all over your body, like not like, like your spleen. Like it's just. It's a weird drug it's it's a, it's a very strange drug um, and I imagine with it becoming legal shortly in Canada we're gonna see a lot more different strains I think we're also gonna see not that we don't have those now but I think you're gonna see companies making things and I think you're gonna to start to see like genetic engineering of the stuff and everything oh no GMO weed calm down seriously what would be the classification then of, of, of marijuana? No, of nicotine. Of nicotine. It's usually thought of as a stimulant, but like I said, it's just more of a taxonomy thing than a, It isn't in the same class as like cocaine or methamphetamine or something like that. It's thought of usually as its own drug, and that's why we'll talk about it in this course yeah, on you know, its own day. We'll talk about it along with, along, with ca- along with caffeine, for example, well, all this sorry, word. along with uh, cocaine. cocaine. Yeah. Good questions. Well done, guys. Okay. Here's some key terms, an agonist. An agonist is something that either makes the nervous system make more of something, or mimics, usually, a neurotransmitter. A really nice example of this is, uh, oh, I don't know, morphine. We have our own endogenous opioids, right, endorphins. We make them. Morphine is shaped just like those things. We make it. We just can't make them in giant industrial quantities. But they're for pay- they, they, the, the function of them, biological function of them, is, is to kill pain, right? When you see so uh, vigorous exercise or you get hurt, you synthesize endorphins. Okay. Right? Okay. So morphine is an endorphin agonist. An antagonist is does the opposite. Naloxone is a morphine antagonist. It's also an endorphin antagonist. What naloxone basically does is it binds to a opiate receptor but doesn't open the ion channel. Okay. If you are suspected of having an opiate overdose, the very first thing that's done is you're given a deep bunch of naloxone. Drugs can have additive effects such that, and it's kind of hard to think about this. If the effect of drug one is three, three what's? Three milli I don't know. And the effect of drug two is seven milli The effect of drug one plus drug two is 10 milli wasteds, which I believe would be a centa wasted if I'm not mistaken. Um, Okay. That's really not the way it usually works. (coughs) It can be, but it's actually rare. It's not usually the case that drugs are completely adamant. It's too bad they aren't, because the world would be a much safer place to think. Because a lot of times people mix two drugs together. Right? No, nobody does that. Drugs are usually super bad. So taking, I don't know, Valium and alcohol. Let's say it's three and three, and three and three equals 11. Uh-oh. See, a lot of times drugs are metabolized. See, the key thing is, when the drugs in your... Once the drug's broken down and getting usually peed out, it's going to sweat out breathe that to me or smell someone's breath who's been drinking, that's not from just having alcohol in their mouth. They're actually exhaling alcohol. Right? It's part of the habit. And you sweat it out. Right? All that kind of stuff. Mostly pee. So when that's happening, by the time that happens, it's out of your system. Good. is an issue here. (laughs) What if the metabolic pathway that's being used for alcohol metabolism, so the metabolic pathway for alcohol, breaking down down and excreting alcohol. Because once it's out of your system, it's not in your brain anymore, and it can't affect it. Right? Yay. What if that same pathway is being used by the pathway for barbiturates? Uh, sorry, benzodiazepines. 79. Be so let's go with barbiturates and let's say phenobarbital. And there is a common metabolic pathway for both alcohol and barbiturates. So, if my metabolic pathway for breaking down, and there's two parallel metabolic pathways for breaking down alcohol. We'll talk about this when we get there, but there's this one metabolic pathway called the microsomal uh, ethanol oxidizing system it's also being, it also is used to break down barbiturates. If it's busy breaking down alcohol, it can't break down the barbiturates, which means they sit in your brain longer and kill you. Remember, anything that slows you down can slow you down to the point where you stop breathing. Anything that speeds you up, you might have a heart attack. (laughs) That's no fun. But you can, I'll just say this. You're more likely to live from a heart attack than from just stopping breathing. Stopping breathing is one of those things that they go, well, I guess he's not breathing anymore. That's probably it for him. And you go, oh, God. Oh, boy. I took way too much. No, no, i take a drug. Cocaine. Quailin's be No. Quailin's be Again, you stop breathing. That's enough for him, then. He can get you to a hospital. You'd likely have a panic attack, free of a heart attack, by the way. Most people think they're having a heart attack. When they, well, oh, I shouldn't say most people, a lot of people, when they think they're having a heart attack, are actually having like a panic attack. Panic attack is slopsy. It's like, okay, okay, that's enough. Okay. Also, I can't feel my face. Blow? Isn't that movie? I can't feel my face. It's actually a very good movie. If, if anybody here who ends up doing the thing about uh, Pablo Escobar and the rise of the drug cartels, watch the movie Blow. Just watch the movie yeah, if you've got too much in there, it's already being broken down by one system. That system also has to be used by another drug. And it can kill you. There's also things like enzyme induction uh, or suppression. So you're breaking down one drug, and it needs, and one of the effects of that drug is breaking down, is it, it, suppressing an enzyme that breaks down another drug. Oh, bad. There can be also sort of, um, let's call them, I hate breaking psychological and biological down to being do different things, but a lot of times we use sort of psychological clues as if we've had enough of a drug, right? Behavioral things, how you feel. You think to yourself, I know I've had enough to drink because I feel drowsy. Right. That's too much to drink. I've had too much to drink. I'm starting to feel drowsy. I don't need any <coughs> But if you're drinking Jägermeister and Red Bull, first of all, you shouldn't be drinking Jägermeister. It's horrible. <laughs> Grow up and drink real alcohol It's the first thing. But you don't feel drowsy. Because you're full of uh, of caffeine. Oh, I'm not drunk. I feel great. Let's have some more vodka. That's a mistake. So it's not necessarily that there's some sort of super additive effect as far as, I mean, it is physiological. But a lot of that is we're responding to a psychological thing here. We use clues. We have these hints. It's like the first time you drank alcohol. Remember that? Remember that? It's like you were 15, 14, 11, last week, whatever it was. The first time you drank alcohol, you went, oh, this is, now I see my mom and dad do this. And you just you drank too much because you're an idiot. So you drink a six-pack in like 40 minutes. And then you You know, Let's do this again. Um, The next time you drink, though, you realize, okay, I don't really need to drink that much to get drunk. I know what it feels like, and you get used to it. Same sort of thing. You, 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 there's a behavioral angle to this called behavioral tolerance. You're, you learn to take care, of it, to understand what it feels like to be on the drug. All right. Questions. Okay. So, let's say you're going to take a drug. You have to get it into your body somehow. If you're injecting a drug, you need a vehicle. Saline, typically? Uh, the slowest absorption, and this is going to be usually something that's done for clinical reasons, is subcutaneous. Just a needle under the skin. That's going to be nice and slow because you're not going directly into the bloodstream, right? We can go intramuscular, and an IM injection. Uh, that'll work a little a little faster than subcutaneous. And this is what's used uh, in battlefield medicine. They they use. Um, intramuscular uh, morphine, right? They have these little things, they open up and it has a needle in it, they just pop it on somebody's bicep or in their butt, usually, because there's a big muscle there in your leg. And it gets morphine in you very quick quickly enough you don't have to have somebody while you're being shot at fighting a pain. Right? Intraparent so that's right into the gut, into the gut cavity. That's the fastest of these three. Typically you're not going to get a whole lot of IP injections for recreational purposes. But a lot of people do that. Yeah. If you want to get it in fast and you want to do it recreationally, you tie a (laughs) turnip around your arm, Uh, you look for a vein, and you put the heroin in your arm. I'm not suggesting you do it, but if you're gonna do it, that's how you do it. We've all been to parties where people took heroin. Okay, I haven't missed that. that You don't. Uh, by the way, that's the scariest thing. You're at a party. There are people you know. There's other people you kind of know. They show up. And in the corner, you go, okay. <laughs> I didn't know I knew people who did that. I'm going to stand all the way over here. And you, know, you go, hi. <laughs> are they gone yet? Oh, no, they look like they're having a lot of fun, and now they all collapsed. Yeah, that's a weird scene, man. <laughs> Try it. No, no, it's cool. Well, why don't you smoke some opium with us? No, really, I'm totally cool. I'm having a beer. In fact, I think I'm not even going to have a beer now. I'm leaving. I thought you said your friend was cool. Intraventricular, if you typically don't into the heart, yeah, you're not going to that for fun. Or the ventricles of the brain, that's typically not the first but it can, you can. You can use that same term. Um, they all get into the bloodstream by diffusion, obviously, except for IV injections and intraventricular injections, which you know, it's in your heart. actually works much the same way. And many people here have inhaled things. And I don't mean cocaine. Many of you have smoked uh, cigarettes or marijuana, right? Um, yes, I'm sure none of you have ever smoked marijuana. But I'm high right now. But if only. So you're going to get um, gases ingested or solids. <coughs> okay. Orally is different, um, so it's got to go through your gut. So, <coughs> excuse me. When you're taking something orally as so a pill or, or alcohol, as a liquid, um, the rate of absorption is going to depend on the lipid solubility. In other words, how much it can dissolve in fat. The more soluble, the easier the absorption. Um, ionized molecules, so if. if Basically, ionized molecules of the drug don't get absorbed. And the rate is pretty constant when it's oral. This is why for something clinical, you probably want to give a pill. Right? When you're taking an antidepressant, you don't take it with an IV injection. You want a nice stable amount of it in you to keep you from having your symptoms. So once the drug is absorbed, it has to get across the blood-brain barrier, and it gets across that membrane through active or passive transport. Active transport requires energy, passive transport is basically just diffusion. Um, some you get, you get protein binding, so what happens is proteins bind onto these drug molecules, and they, they can't make it through the blood-brain barrier. It's taken to the bloodstream by the kidneys and the liver, and this is measured in half life. Right, so if, if you took 100 milligrams of cocaine, and I think, if I remember the half life of cocaine is 40 minutes. So in 40 minutes, you have 50 milligrams of caffeine, I'm oh, sorry, of cocaine. And then in another 40 minutes, you have 25 milligrams, right? Because it breaks down half of it. So it's the half-life. Just same way with uh, those of you guys who played with, uh, you know, doing things with radioactive decay. OK. But that's true of everything except for alcohol. Uh, alcohol is weird. When we get to alcohol, you go, ahead. Eh? What affects the metabolism? What So how, how quickly or how slowly you break something down? Your age? So sometimes the older you are, the, the more quickly you break down a drug or the more slowly. It really depends. Um, Uh, Sex, typically this is based on a couple of things. You might think, oh, hormones. It's not usually hormones. It's actually more the fact that women, on average, have more body fat. More often, that's what it is. Species. Some species uh, metabolize drugs differently than others. And this is important because sometimes you want to look like I said, LD50 of a drug. You want to make sure that the drug is being broken down the same way in... I don't know, rhesus monkeys, than it is being broken down in humans, right? <clears throat> enzyme induction and depression, I talked about that before. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes a drug will, taking say two drugs, will one of the drugs will induce the production of an enzyme or make it less likely. Uh... Smokers metabolize caffeine more quickly than non smokers This is because of enzyme consumption. Caffeine is more quickly metabolized in people who eat broccoli just before eating caffeine. What? The so people who haven't just eaten broccoli. Why, right? So you take take the absorption together with the excretion, and you get what's called the time course of the drug. And I'm sorry, that's to see. So this is the absorption curve here. And this is the excretion curve here. Take this curve and subtract this curve, and you get this lovely time course curve. Questions? Called a therapeutic window. And that's, well, the idea is you want to maintain enough of the drug in the system for it to have a therapeutic effect, for it to have the effect you're interested in. This is easy if a drug has a long time course. Right? So if that, we saw that peak there in the therapeutic window, you want to keep that as long as possible. So if that drug is like that, it's much easier. Then if it goes, right, And also makes that noise because it makes, that's weird. So if the time course is shorter, this is much harder. This is why typically, for example, post-operative pain, you're not going to be given IV morphine. Or if you are, you can get a very small amount. Right? You're more likely to be given either morphine or some will uphill. pill every few hours, or you get a drip that is subcutaneous, for example. You might be given that, rather than right into a vein. And like I said, the nice thing about a pill is the absorption slope. we get a nice slow absorption curve a nice slow excretion curve, we're going to have a nice big therapeutic window typically. Okay. So that's some pharmacology stuff, some very basic stuff. What about the behavioral end of this? So we've got an independent variable, that's the response, and the dose response curve. Right? Sorry, the dose. And then the response is the dependent variable. You need a control condition of some sort, typically. I'm going to very quickly go over these things. Anybody here not taking a research methods course? It's okay if you have it. I just want to. Pretty much all have it. Okay.
1: So, most of review here.
0: Um, there's a couple ways to do this. You can go between subjects, so one group gets a drug, one group doesn't get a <coughs> Or you can do within subjects, you can go no drug, drug, no drug. So, an ABA kind of design. That works. do statistical tests. Anybody here not taking stats? We've all taken stats. No Nobody? Nobody, right? Just determine if it's just by random chance alone that the two groups are different, or is it something we can get some money on, basically. That's all that is. Pretty straightforward. One of the really important thing in this kind of work is placebo controls. So it's not just that you give a drug and don't give a drug. You're going to probably want to have at least three groups. You're going to want to have drug, no drug, and placebo. Okay. The placebo might involve, let's say you're doing an injection of some sort. You would have an injection group with the drug. A no-drug control, an injection group with a placebo, so they just get saline. Let's say we're doing this with rats and the nose-poking thing. Any other drug? any other groups you think we're going to need to see if that drug we have is going to, I don't know, do whatever the hell it is. So we've got, already we've got drug, no drug, and placebo. So they're getting injected with, a, with, with saline, but not the drug. Other drugs you think they might need? Other, other drugs. Other, other groups we might need. If they're given the drug and they know that they're taking the drug? I don't think the rats are going to know or not oh, know. Okay.
1: Between subjects,
0: yeah. So it's between subjects, yeah. So any other groups in the, we're going to need? Because so far we've got a no-drug, drug, and placebo drug, like placebo control. They're being given an injection, but they're not being given any morphine or whatever the hell it is. I can think of at least two. And there may be more. I can, I can just think of two. I'm gonna explain to you how you give a rat an injection. You pick the rat up and you pick it up with anybody here have rats? Have rats? Okay. You put your tooth, your finger and your thumb around the basically the sh- underneath the arm heads, the front, okay, like that, and your head your finger over the head. That's how you pick them up because then they can't they won't bite at you because their arms are like this. And you got your hand over their head. So they can't move back to Put them on your, like that, and you inject them. Okay? So we've got one group we've given morphine to. The one group we've given saline, no morphine to. We've got one group we haven't done anything to. What's some other groups we need? You know how much a lab rat weighs? 250 grams. I'm not going to ask anybody here how much they weigh, but I'm considering I think it's orders of magnitude larger than 250 grams. You are being picked up by something thousands of times your size. How about just being handled? What about that being a control group? Don't you think that might have some behavioral thing? Being handled in the same way you're going to give the drug pick them up, turn them like that. There's the group. What about pick them up, put the needle in them, don't inject them? It's called a sham injection. Yeah. What about pick them up, show them the needle? Yeah, probably do that too. Seriously, you would have some of these drug studies you guys are going to read for your papers will have like 15 control groups. You're gonna go, oh that's weird. But then you realize the think of the stress of something thousands of times your size picking you up like this, and you're like, I'm just gonna do it, something hurt. That's a stressful thing to happen to a to an animal. The stress could certainly, oh, I don't know, perhaps have some effect on their behavior. <coughs> Maybe. Right? And very often you'll see that the no nothing, no handling at all control group is different than everything. One of the bigger differences, that's the one that's different than everybody else. Then you compare all those other control groups to the drug control. Friend of mine that was his undergraduate job in between third and fourth year. He gave rats, morphine, and amphetamine, and various controlled substances. Control groups. Well, they were all controlled substances. This is a great example. Um, this paper, Levine, Gordon, and Fields, they have two roots. This is see, oh, this is old, but this is one of the this was kind of the beginning beginning. This is doing stuff on analgesia, Zawan, pain killing. And it was one of the most important experiments to say look, you know what? We need need control groups, placebo control groups. Because there's something physiologically interesting going on. One group's given real analgesia, one group's given a placebo. Okay? The analgesia is uh, an opiate. They both reported analgesia, by the way. Oh, my pain's gone, or I have less pain. Really? Placebo effect is a strong thing. These are, by the way, these are adults. These aren't like little children. you say, take hey, this and it'll make your tummy feel better, which I gave my daughter so she was four with, with, with uh, vitamins. She said, she claimed she had a tummy one day when she asked me, how do vitamins get rid of stomach aches? I said, they don't. I've been lying to you. It's called the placebo effect. I'm sorry. Kid kid was born to be a scientist. When she was four, she said, I dropped my keys. She said, why did that happen? I said, well, I just let it go. She said, no, why did they hit the ground? I said, you want me to explain gravity to you? Okay. Daddy didn't take physics past grade 11. Now we give them naloxone. Not we, them. I was 12 then, so I had nothing to do with this experiment. I was, of course, I subscribed to the journal then. A kid! I always subscribed to Nature. <laughs> Again, a kid. Um, it was science. But you get return of pain, but only in the analgesia group. What? So they give them both naloxone, which is an opiate antagonist. blocks the analgesia from the opiate. It doesn't block the analgesia from the sugar pill. (laughs) There's a different mechanism going on here. For the longest time, people thought placebos were basically just, oh, your body's making endorphins. Endorphins, by the way, hadn't been discovered yet at this point. But everyone knew there were endorphins, or had to be. And everybody figured, oh, I know what's happening. Placebos are uh, basically you're, it's making you make endorphins. No, nope. it's some different process. It's a freaking mystery. It's still pretty much a mystery. They followed this up in seventy eight with a paper on. Um, oh, that looks awful. Both of these, by the way, this and the, the seventy eight paper were about um, dental post operative pain. So people have had uh, like root canal and it hurts, and they're being given. Uh, an obvious codeine I think. You can see here by the way, it's a classic paper as I said. Twelve hundred and seven citations. That's pretty good. That's a couple. Just a couple. Wait, can you go back? I'm sorry? Can you go back? Yes I can. Yep. Yeah. Yes. And it only returned to pain in the group that received the analgesic? Yes. Okay, because it was just kind of confusing to me. It is confusing. If... Well, I think in the way that it's perfect. Oh, yeah, was it really? Well, I'm not sure if it did. So I'm not sure. The of pain happens in the analgesia group after the naloxone is given to them. Because the naloxone combats the analgesia. What is second. Well, I yeah, I, I, yeah, it is worded poorly. You're right. Yeah, I understand the process of it. OK, no, it, you're right. It is worded poorly. I'll have to read you that. For you. Yes, I could, but I haven't since 1997. I, I thank whatever deity I feel like praying to each day. Um, there is nothing more boring than teaching it. You think taking research methods is boring? Try teaching it. Now we're going to talk about independent variables. I'll be asleep. So you need correlation research is important. Uh, the correlation is causation. I'm not going to go into anything grand about that. I could show you tremendous graphs about how, for example, the there's an almost 1.0 correlation between the rise of sales of organic food and the increase in diagnoses of autism. They are related. They're correlated beautifully, though. Science is not done in a vacuum, except if it's not in space. (laughs) But (laughs) so a lot of people, and this was a lot of times with people early on in the days of cigarettes. Well, you know, it's just correlational. All these people who smoke end up getting lung cancer. But, you know, correlation isn't causation. Yeah, and then we've got a thousand animal studies and a zillion things about mechanisms of cancer. yet. Yeah, they kill you. So unstructured observation isn't useful. So just watching stuff happen, that, that does nothing. Anecdotes, the plural of anecdote is not data. Right, it's the same, this is the same person who says, oh, well, you know, maybe smoking's bad for you, but my my, uh, my grandmother lived to be 97 and smoked four packs a day. Good for her. Well done. Like when Leonard Nimoy died, right? He lived to be like 93 or whatever. He smoked until till like two years ago. What would have happened if he not smoked? He would have lived to be 95. Who cares? So I guess wearing... Vulcan years, stops the smoking, or stops the effects of the camera, uh, cigarettes. Systematic observation's great, so self-report can be great. Self-reports can be great, but they have to be done, and the psychology students know about this, using proper kinds of uh, measurement. Things like the McGill Pain Questionnaire, developed by uh, Melzack. The most depressing course I took in my life was a fourth-year course on pain Here's an example, that's the McGill. whoa, can't we see that? That's the McGill Pain Questionnaire. Now, what happens when you fill out this questionnaire is that you mark on your body, as you can see in those, uh, the, the sort of line drawing on the right, you could mark on your body where the pain happens. And then you've got all these different categories you can pick. Hot, burning, scalding, or searing. Pinching, pressing, gnawing, cramping, crushing, and this is actually a reliable and valid measure of pain, and it's used. Analgesia research uses this all the time. Uses all the time. Often used with uh, chronic pain kind of research as well. So here's some common dependent variables. You can use arousal level with an EEG. That's pretty easy. It's non-invasive. You just put a cap on your head. A lot of perceptual things. Uh, flicker fusion is a great one. Flicker fusion, at some point when a stimulus flickers, it fuses into a non-flickering stimulus. Like light bulbs, not like these, but like incandescent light bulbs, they flicker at 60, 60 times a second you just can't see it because your flicker fusion rate is below 60 right. but one of the things that happens sometimes with drugs is it changes your flicker fusion rate various thresholds can be used so pain thresholds do you feel pain yet uh, do you notice the stimulus is here or not that kind of thing sort of psychophysical things I guess you call those uh, timing things are used quite a bit, so we could use things like how much time has passed. This is a beautiful thing to, talk, to find out if it's sped up your internal clock or slowed it down. In fact, I'll very often talk about this when I talk about different drugs. I'll say this drug slows down this, slows down your internal clock, or it speeds up your internal clock. Okay, how do we do that? I just say I'd like you to tell me each time ten seconds passes. All you have to do is push a button every time you think ten seconds has passed, right? And then I give you the drug. Do the same thing. I can do that with a rat or a, or a pigeon too. It's easy. I don't do it by saying that. I train them. It's a little more complicated. These cognitive things like memory, right? Um, vigilance is a great one. Um, so memory tests are easy. Or trivially easy. Just give people a list of words and then see if they can recall those list of words. And then see how much they recall after a dose of X or whatever. Uh, vigilance is an interesting one because it's used a lot in sort of human factors research. So vigilance is something like, for example, what I want you to do, here's, your, here's the mouse. And every time it, the, 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 the cursor on the screen moves, I want you to move it back to the middle of the screen. And how good are you at that on the drug and not on the drug? Okay. Uh, pursuit, pursuit rotor task is a is a fun one because what you do is you take a, got a turntable for record, you know, spinning, and then you have a little wand, and you have to keep that little wand on the on the usual light, so it's like a, it's, it detects the light, and that's not hard to do if you've not been drinking. Yourself. It's boring but you'd be amazed at how after one drink that becomes almost impossible. Simple motor things after one drink are amazing. Try this the next time you've had, say, two beers. You don't feel drunk, you've had two beers. Try the old thing where you put your feet together, close your eyes, and touch your nose. You'd be amazed at how many times you go. And you don't feel like there's any effect. put the reeds. Tapping rate is kind of like a timing thing again. I'd like you to tap... Once a second. Again, if your clock is sped up, you're going to go slow it down, or you might get distracted. So non-humans can do timing experiments, as I talked about. I'm not going to go into great detail about how this works. If anybody does stuff and they have non-human timing stuff, I've done some stuff like that. I'll explain it to you if it's for your paper. Uh, learning and memory experiments, so a lot of stuff with running around on a maze, for example. Avoidance is easy. Uh, do they avoid a, a, a stimulus or a part of a box? The Pollock test is used for analgesia. You put a rat on a hot plate, and I don't mean it's turned up to like enough to make craft dinner. okay? It's like 50 degrees Celsius. It's not it's the same as like your car is when it's warm. It's not like you're cooking rats. Okay? That would be weird. But if you put a rat on a hot plate and it hurts a little, it'll it'll, pick, it'll take its pot and lick it. As soon as it does that, you take off hot. And then you give it some morphine. You do it and it takes longer. It's just detecting analgesia. That's all that's doing a very effective test of analgesia. All right. Drug effects themselves can be conditioned. So conditioning, classical and operant conditioning, right? Classical conditioning is like what? Like Pavlov's dogs. Buzzer, food, buzzer, food, buzzer, food, buzzer, and then you get salivation. It's not a bell, it was a buzzer. Go we'll read Pavlov. It was a buzzer. It's not a bell. My list of pet peeves, which is a long freaking list. That's on. Buzzer. So the unconditioned response, which in this case, look, Pavlov is the salivation, and the conditioned response is also the salivation, correct? But they're not always the same in drug-taking behavior. So if the drug effect is in the peripheral nervous system, a lot of times you get the opposite effect. So outside the brain, the spinal cord, cerebellum, you get in fact the opposite effect. You get what's called preparatory conditioning. Your body is getting ready for the drug by going in the opposite direction. Things that can happen, I talked about this very briefly before, is something called behavioral tolerance. This was first discovered by Campbell and C in 1973. The idea that you can't that you can learn to behave on a drug. Right? You can learn to behave on a drug. I think we've all known people who've taken too much of something who have a drug problem, or we mean no something. Maybe it's your uncle. Your drunk uncle, right? So that's it. The amazing thing is drunk uncle is able to keep drinking and pretty much hold a very weird, probably racist conversation. And you're like, how can he drink that much and survive each day? Because drunk uncle gets up in the morning, puts rye on his fruit loops. He's used to drinking and, and functioning. Right? A lot of times people say, well, oh, that guy's an alcoholic. And you go, really? I didn't know. It's like, no, he's always drunk. He's just good at it. It's behavioral tolerance. When you originally took, like when, when um, Campbell and Seaton took rats and tried to get them to do this what's called a DRL schedule. Differential reinforcement for low rates of responding. This is really hard to get racks to do. It's like, only respond once to this bar. Only push it once to get food in 10 seconds. It'd be hard for you to do. It's hard for, i have watched you people at the elevator. Let's make it come any faster. Number of times I said to people, once works, what are you, a pigeon? Psych students always get the joke. Everyone else goes, what do you mean kitchen? So training a rat to push a bar once is hard. But it can be done. Training a rat to do that after you give them, and then giving them amphetamine and seeing if they'll do it. Oh, wait man! But you know what? If you train them on amphetamine, so you give them amphetamine, so they're full of speed, and then you get them to do it, they can learn it. Just like you can learn, yeah, please don't ever drive drunk. But some people actually can because they have practice at it. They don't drive better when they're drunk than when they're straight, but they drive better than the most drunk drivers. You understand what I mean? This is not a thing saying, well, you start driving drunk to practice. I did not say that, internet. Okay? That's not what I mean. I'm saying that. People can do it because they've done a lot. There are people, I know a guy who I will not name, I will not even name what university he's at, he's just just saying he's not here, all I will say, who was always hammered when he was teaching. Because he was always hammered always. And he was competent. He would have been way better if he weren't drunk. But if I was that hammered, teaching wouldn't work. But it's behavioral tolerance. You learn how to be on a drug. Rats can learn to be on a drug and do something that's hard for them to do. Um, you can do that too. It's something you aspire to. <laughs> I'm saying that it's an important thing to, 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 to take into account this idea of behavioral tolerance. All right, any questions? Please don't drink it, drive, or practice it. That's today's message. All right, thanks everyone.
1: Follow. We'll be back in town to Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, The music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, (laughs) lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like podsafe music. So if you want to find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time.